Good morning. Last week I was down on the floor and uh, we experimented that with that for a week, but uh, I got some mic issues with uh, reception, so I'm going to come back up here and uh, preach from the stage this morning. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I would like to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Genesis. We'll be in the ninth chapter mostly today. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29 is where we'll be camping out today. Keep that passage handy. We'll uh, read that together in just a couple minutes here. If you need a Bible, by the way, we'd love for you to go ahead and take a Bible in the pew rack. If you don't want have one of your own, you can take that, put your name on it. It's yours. we got extras to replace those. I also want to invite you to uh, go ahead and take notes in the inside of the worship guide that you uh, were handed or picked up on the way in today. You'll find life group questions on the inside of that as well. As we uh, jump in here, let's, going, let's go ahead and declare together the authority of the word by holding up your Bibles and saying this together. It's something we've repeated at the beginning of Genesis here, and it's a symbol for us of our lives under the authority of the word of God. Let's go ahead and repeat this together. This is the written word of God. It is his creation and purpose. It is my so this morning I give myself wholeheartedly to hear from God and his word that I might be in tune with his purposes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come this morning with lots of things on our hearts and minds that uh, still weigh, that still lay burdens on us, and so we want to put those aside for a moment. We want to empty spaces in our lives and in our hearts right now so that you can speak to us through your Spirit, so that you can work in us and among us through your Word. We ask that because of what we talk about today, because of our study, that we would become people who more and more reflect personally your heart for the nations that we would be people who see as our life's goal to scatter your goodness and glory so that all would know who you are, that all would experience what it means to know you in intimate relationship. And so, Lord, we ask that you would shape us toward that end today because of what we read and what we study in your word. In the name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. A few of you may remember me telling this story before. It's the story of my first sermon. Uh, one might call it a tragedy. I, I want to go ahead because uh, I want to provide you with more fodder, fodder with which to ridicule. No. Um, I want to tell it again because of all the things that the story of my first sermon uh, shows... Most notably, the story of my first sermon is a picture of the feelings that accompany the slide from triumph and glory and winning to defeat and disgrace and feelings of shame. That's what the story of my first sermon feels like. It was my very first opportunity to preach in big church, you know, big church where the adults where I was preaching twice a week to middle schoolers and high schoolers downstairs, but I was upstairs. 
and I was 25 years old, my first opportunity, I was stoked. I was excited to, to get up there and, and preach because I was, I was ready. I mean, I was over ready. I was sure I had so much preparation and readiness. I was, I was prayed up and I was, and I was pumped for this uh, exciting moment for me to preach my first sermon. I was sure we'd see at least two to three dozen people on that first time just fall on their knees, weeping at the weight of their sin so that they could make right with God. I was just sure of it. I was ready for, you know, some Billy Graham type kind of harvest. You know what I mean? So, so I had a solid 40 minutes worth of content prepared. Solid 40 minutes. And I had it on an eight, eight and a half by 14 legal uh, piece of paper landscape. On one side I had the outline. On the other I had the manuscript in case I got lost in the sermon in preaching. And uh, I, I realized about 30 seconds into it, I was lost. It didn't take that long. I was lost. I didn't know where I was headed. I was like a deer in headlights, terrified at that moment of what was going on in that time. The sweat and the red-faced embarrassment came swiftly and with force. It was a miserable experience. What was supposed to be about 40 minutes or so, and and I had 40 minutes of content ready. What was supposed to be 40 minutes of content ended up becoming, no exaggeration, eight minutes. Eight minutes of misery. <laughs> Don't start clapping. I can add eight minutes now without even, without even trying. I can add eight minutes. <laughs> Before the service, I was prayed up, ready to bring it, and then 30 seconds into it, I realized I had written the most boring sermon ever written. I realized Billy Graham's job was safe, and uh, I would, decided to forget that preaching thing. I really did. Um, in fact, when, when I finished uh, that painful eight minutes, I, I marched straight. I mean, I marched straight down the aisle. I forgot the invitation. I had I had given that away a long time ago. Decided to what am I going to invite them? So, so I went down the aisle straight to the pastor's office in the back where I knew he kept that lapel mic, I threw it in the drawer, I slammed it shut, and I declared to my wife, I will never, ever do that again. I had officially gone from feelings of excited and stoked and pumped up, from like triumph and glory to, within the span of eight minutes, feelings of like defeat and shame. Now I know that's, a bit of a lighthearted example. But have you ever experienced that jarring feeling? That jarring feeling of, of absolute failure right on the heels of triumph and feelings of glory? Maybe you've experienced that kind of feeling in your life. Maybe you've gone into a job interview, sure that you were the, the right man for the job, and, and in a few minutes in you, you realize, I am not the right man for the job. That's a jarring kind of experience. Maybe, maybe at more root heart issues than even that, maybe you've worked hard on something time and again only to see it continue to fail. Not just, not just once or twice, but maybe in issues, heart issues like sin, dozens 
and dozens of times that easily become hundreds of times. You work hard to, to will yourself to triumph and glory and goodness. And you seem to experience that repeated frustration, that, that jarring failure of repeated sin. That's sort of the kind of jarring experience when we get to the text today. That's sort of the jarring feeling we experience when we get to today's passage because there's a sharp contrast between last week with rainbows and the grace of God and, and glory of God being revealed through the people of Noah and his family to today's story. It's at the end of Noah's life on the heels of something as awesome as being saved from the flood. And this is the story the Bible tells. Think about it. When we left Noah, he was standing triumphant before his family with a beautiful rainbow in the background. I imagine him standing there in a a colorful robe, Wind whisking through his flowing white hair and beard. Large staff in his hand, chest out. His family following him, triumphantly coming out of the ark with rainbows in the background. And here, today, we read about Noah, drunk and lying naked in shame on his bed, being mocked by his youngest son. In one moment... We're reading about how God is establishing a relationship of salvation by grace through faith. And there are pretty rainbows. And Noah and his family stand triumphantly as this symbol of salvation. And, then, and that gives us warm fuzzies and, and makes us smile. And we like that. And then in the very next passage, we read the last account of Noah's life. The very last account of great patriarch Noah, spiritual father of the people of God lying drunk and naked in his own tent. There are lots of lessons to learn today. One of them, I think, is that apparently salvation doesn't depend on perfect obedience because it's not what we see. Even spiritual patriarch Noah sinned. Let's read the text together in Genesis 9, 18 through 29. We'll read the whole passage together, and then we'll come back and uh, make some notes about specific verses. Verse 18, Genesis 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord. 
the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. It closes with two little verses here. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now back at verse 18 there, if you're following along, verse 18 at the beginning of this passage here, we're told of Noah's three sons who come from the ark. And it points out here something sort of out, of out of place. It says, Ham was the father of Canaan. As if we're supposed to know what that means. Well, this is a gotta-know-your-Jewish-history kind of moment. When we come across that parenthetical statement there where it says, Ham was the father of Canaan, we think, okay, great. <laughs> you know, Ham fathered a guy named Canaan. Big deal. Well, what Genesis is saying here is this is where the history of the Canaanites began. You see, we find out later on in both Exodus and Deuteronomy that because the Canaanites worshipped other gods other than the one true almighty God, because they worshipped other gods, they were wiped out as part of making way for the Jews to enter the promised land. So to someone who knows that Jewish history, they come across this parenthetical statement in Genesis 9.18, and, and, and they realize that when it says, Ham was the father of Canaan, they think, oh, so this is where it all started for the Canaanites. It's a history that continues to develop throughout the Old Testament. So, so right away, we are triggered to the idea that there is something more than just this drunkenness of Noah going on. It's easy for us to read this and think, well, obviously this is about Noah's drunkenness and his sin. And it is, but there is something that points us to that we will look at later on. Verse 19, it says, These three, that's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. From these three sons of Noah, the peoples of the earth were dispersed. We see that dispersion, that, that dispersion, that scattering take shape uh, later on in chapters 10 and 11. In fact, God makes sure that that scattering happens when the people don't want it to happen at the Tower of Babel. This is a way... This is the way of the author, of, of Moses here, pointing out to us to remember God's important command to be fruitful and to multiply. Look back in Genesis 9 for just a second. It, uh, at verses 1 and verses 7, it says to be fruitful and multiply in both of those places. They've just been done with the flood. They're coming off the ark. And God says, don't forget, just like I commanded in Genesis 1.28, in what we call the creation mandate, don't forget, this is your goal. He's reminding him of their marching orders. And if you don't yet have this concept of Genesis 1.28 firmly in your head, I'm going to repeat it probably about every other Sunday in Genesis. The creation mandate is a key passage for all of the people of God. And this is showing us that the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply was beginning to be carried out by Noah's descendants. That's an important thread of meaning in this passage as well as the rest of Scripture. One more important note here uh, for verse 19. That word dispersed here, like I've already mentioned, it means to be scattered. It means to be scattered. If you're a circler, circle that word in your Bibles there because it's an important one. Dispersed. It's reminding us that the goal 
is to scatter God's glory. As we see next week at the Tower of Babel, people rebel against that goal. Look at Genesis 11 for just a second. This is a hint of what happens next week. 11.4, it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, unless, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They rejected that plan for their lives. They rebelled against God's goal of scattering his glory. So, so don't miss this important thing about what it means to follow God. God's goal is his glory through dispersing his people. But fallen humanity's goal is quite different. Don't miss this because it is huge for Genesis and it's huge for our own lives. Uh, If you're a note taker, write this down next to verse 19, that God's goal is God's glory made known through scattering his people. God's goal is his glory through scattering his people. That's sort of a, a mini theology of creation in a simple formula. It is practically the Great Commission here in Genesis. And how different is that than how we think about our lives? Oh, sure, we gather. We gather here. We are the gathered people of God in worship for the purpose of being scattered peoples. Don't ever forget that second half. If this is what it is for you, and this is it, you have missed Scripture. It is a thread throughout the entire Old Testament. It's there in chapter 1, and it continues throughout the entire Old and New Testaments that God's goal is not your glory, it's His glory through scattering you. So what we do here is to train and to equip and to teach and to ready ourselves to be prepared to be part of His mandate for all of creation. And if that second half, if being a scattered, sent person for our lives does not register, we have missed the boat. We are not even fully human as he's intended for us to be. You see, when God's glory is made known, your life becomes meaningful and valuable and purposeful in a way which it never otherwise would. In fact, enjoyment of the goodness of God happens as you give away your life. Don't ever, ever, ever miss that. Verse 20 says, Noah, he began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. This thread of planting and gardening, of of putting something in place that becomes a way for God's glory to be made known continues throughout Genesis here. It says that Noah began to be a man of the soil. Noah is like Adam before. Like God, who was a gardener, Look it up in Genesis 2.8. Genesis 2.8 says that God was a gardener. God planted Adam, Genesis 2.15, who was described as a gardener, Genesis 2.15. And here Noah is described as carrying on that good work of scattering, of planting. So Noah keeps up this gardening theme here. Uh, but, but it says he planted a vineyard. Uh, that's a little bit of a different twist 
from farming and agriculture of before. In one sense, it's an improvement because it's sort of a luxury item to have a drink that tastes good and doesn't just keep us alive. But uh, that like, like luxurious item uh, is not just something to be enjoyed. It's also something that had consequences. Verse 21, it says, He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. This is Noah's sin. Now, there's a lot in this passage uh, that we do not know. Here in verse 21, uh, we don't know if this is a regular occurrence for Noah. We don't know if this was a regular occurrence for people of the day. We don't know if Noah had ever been drunk before. We don't know if anyone has ever been drunk before. Uh, On that second part of that passage there where it says he lay uncovered in his tent, we're not sure exactly what that means. In fact, uh, the Bible nerds very wildly in their speculation on what it means to say that he lay uncovered. Uh, Because the Hebrew language here could mean lots of things. It could mean something all the way from simple nakedness, as we probably think about it most naturally, all the way it could range from something like that to uh, something as as, uh, egregious as, as Ham sodomizing Noah. And all the Bible nerds sort of seem to think it's somewhere all along those. Most tend to basically think Noah was naked. And that's about it. So long story short, we don't really know anything other than what it says, which means we have lessons to learn that don't depend on details we don't know. Don't miss this in Scripture interpretation. To learn that depend on what we know, not on what we don't know. So, Long story short, right on the heels of rainbows and triumph, here's Noah. Here's Noah, ashamed, drunk, lying on his bed in his tent. But the fact that we don't know the exact nature of Noah's laying uncovered doesn't mean there isn't important meaning here. What we do know, as I said before, is that Noah sinned. He sinned, which we know because there's the implication of shame in this story. So Noah is now uncovered. He's exposed as a result of his sin. And that's a picture of what happens when we sin. We are uncovered. We are exposed before God and everybody. And even if we're not exposed before everybody else, we are always exposed before God. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 were uncovered and exposed. And so they tried to hide that shame. They covered it by sewing together fig leaves. Now, This idea of sin as an uncovering, as an exposure, is all over the Bible, as is the antidote of covering for sin. So to uncover oneself is uh, is regarded as incompatible with living in the presence of God. To be uncovered with one's sin is incompatible with living in the presence of God. Nakedness is a picture of what happens. We are exposed before God by our sin. Ephesians 5 makes this point by saying, Take no part 
in the unfruitful works of darkness. Interesting phrase there, unfruitful, as the opposite of being fruitful. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Take no part in them, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. That is that sin exposes us before God. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then it says this, verse 13, Hebrews 4, great, great verse. No from his sight but all are naked and to the eyes of him to whom we must give account it's not just Noah it's all of us it's it's all of us and if and if great man of faith Noah patriarch of the people of God through whom God carried out his plans, if Noah is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give account, what crazy notion goes through our heads to make us think that we are any better than him? We, every single one of us before God, are exposed and open as sinful. And if we don't know, what salvation by grace through faith means, we continue to invite the curse of remaining that way like Ham. Verse 22 is where Ham shows his true colors. He says, uh, Moses says here in verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This is another example of what we don't know telling us what we need to know. We don't know exactly what Ham saw. We don't know exactly what Ham did. We don't know the exact nature of what he told his brothers, nor do we know how. But there is the implication here that Ham was somehow mocking or making fun of his father's shameful state. That is the crux of this passage. Ham was in some form or fashion delighting in making fun of his father's sin. He's humiliating his father, and he's trying to bring his brothers into it. And Ham is acting here in a way that Scripture very much condemns. We know that because of the curse that he receives later on. Now, Ham's sin was not simply in seeing his father naked. His sin was not just seeing him exposed, though that was a shameful thing, but it was his outspoken delight at his father's disgraceful condition. That was Ham's sin. Ham's sin is not too far away from us than we might think. It's something to which I have fallen prey time and time and time again. And it is this. Self-righteous delight in the sin of another. 
God despises the self-righteous delight in another's sin. In Romans 1, 28 and following, when it describes those who do not acknowledge God and who are given up to a debased or a corrupted mind, it says this, those who are debased were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, Ham knew God's decree. We know God's decree. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's an ugly list, isn't it? Does gossip, does self-righteous delight in the sin of another seem out of place in that list? Perhaps to us. but apparently not in God's way of things. The reason that God despises self-righteous gossip, self-righteous delight in another's sin, is because it points to the second thing that we need to note here. That is what exposes the truth of one's heart. And it exposed the truth of Ham's heart here. His self-righteous delight in the disgrace of his father is what exposed his heart. And so now Ham is uncovered. Ham is uncovered and exposed and inviting the curse of God on his own life. And Noah does that on God's behalf. The good news of the gospel is that we have the opportunity to be people like Shem and Japheth. Verse 23. It shows how they cover the sin. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, a slave of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Unlike Ham, Shem and Japheth covered their father's nakedness and shame. The text sort of slows down the action. It tells us twice that they walked backwards. It tells us twice that they covered and did not see Noah. It's making very clear that in contrast to self-righteous Ham, they were intentional about not seeing their father's nakedness because they were intentional about helping to cover up their father's sin. And as a result, they receive the blessing of Noah. So what about us? What about you? How, how often have our self 
righteous thoughts, spoken, kept silent, uncovered and exposed who we are. Look at that. That is disgraceful. Can you believe that? That is shameful. The option. We have the option. That instead of of, of openly enjoying that kind of behavior and self-righteously delighting in sin, we have the opportunity to instead delight in helping God cover up. You see, self-righteous spiritual systems of churchianity can easily make people think, grace, you can't really trust it. They've learned that from us. You realize that. They learned that from us. We have the opportunity, on the other hand, to be people who point to the righteousness of Christ as a way of scattering the glory of God. That's the option. Sit around and self-righteously delight in one's own goodness that never existed in the first place, or graciously scatter the glory of God to people who are likewise sinners. We have the opportunity to cover it up. Psalm 5 says, For you, God, bless the righteous. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Psalm 32 said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 85 says, You forgave the iniquity of your people, and you covered all their sin. Psalm 91 says, He will cover you with his pinions. This is God. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield. We could go on and on and on with verses that talk of the antidote of covering sin. But there's one I want you to see that wraps it all together in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, if you could turn there for a second. Romans 3, 23 to 27 is a place that wraps all these ideas together for us. It's a rich, a rich and a deep passage in Romans that brings together these ideas. It says, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a soothing for God's wrath by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. Look at this, verse 26. He did that to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He did it this way to prove that He and not us is the just and the one who justifies. So, verse 27, who can boast No one. There is no boasting 
in one's own righteousness for the follower of God. The gospel is this. There is only boasting in Christ's righteousness alone to cover your sin. The good news is that those who are saved are saved because Christ is the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is our heart's desire to be people who make known your glory and not ours. We have usurped your glory for ourselves in countless ways. Speaking about ourselves and others as if there is ground for boasting. Lord, open our eyes to the truth that the law could never be lived up to. From the beginning of your story in Genesis, you teach us the truth that you alone, you alone are fit. You alone are just and justifier. We ask, Father, that you would continue to make of us people who live out of that truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We invite you as a baptized believer in Christ, if you're looking for a church home, to come forward and to be a member at First Christian Church. And we also invite you, if you would like to publicly declare your faith in Christ in the waters of baptism, to come forward as well. If you just need somebody to pray with, we'd also like you to come on forward and uh, we can have you pray with a staff member or an elder as we stand and sing.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. 
to us, and we just want to take this opportunity, this time, to give back to you um, a small, and such a small pittance fire of what you've given uh, to us. We pray we would do this with generous and giving hearts. We pray that this uh, offering would go to dispersing, scattering your glory, Father, around the world. Um, not just here locally, but to all parts, Father. We just pray this money would be used for your glory and your purposes. And Father, at this time, we pray together the prayer that you taught your disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My prayer like incense rise before you The lifting of my hands a sacrifice Oh Lord Jesus turn your eyes upon me For I know there is mercy in your sight Your statues are my heritage and my heart is set on keeping your decrees Please still my anxious urge towards rebellion 